morning. Turn in your Bibles, please, whether it be in the printed form or digital, whatever you have there. And I hope you all have some copy of the Word of God to Psalm 1. Psalm 1, the very first sung prayer of the collection of 150. That's not where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time this morning, but it is where we will begin. I have been encouraged by the series on the best is yet to come as we've heard our pastor teach on a variety of the elements concerning that place which we call, if we are children of God, home. I hope your heart longs for it. I hope that this series has caused you to think on it with more fervency and regularity. Um, I thought our pastor's message last week was particularly encouraging and um, make sure you thank him and pray for him they're away on vacation and getting some much needed rest and recuperation and so uh, glad to be here today to preach the word of God to you Psalm 1 blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Our Father, we pray that you'd bless the reading and the hearing of the Word of God. Draw us into your embrace. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and guide. May all the glory and the honor go to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May it be for our good, for our encouragement, for our equipping that we might give proper testimony to this wonderful place which is far better than anything the world can offer and that we might, by our testimony, bring many more with us into this kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think sometimes we can hunker down in our New Testament and think that the subject of heaven is primarily a New Testament subject uh, with the most uh, said about heaven within its pages. And while we get much more specific information about eternity within the pages of our New Testament, those 27 books uh, in the canon of Scripture, the first 39 books of the Old Testament certainly are rich with the symbols of and the types of and the language of eternity. And it would do us well to think carefully upon these things. And I've begun with Psalm 1 today because I think it sets the tone, and I've often said this uh, when preaching in, in chapel services or even, quite frankly, at funeral services where the thought of eternity is on everyone's heart and mind. There is quite a sense of our own mortality and frailty at at a funeral service, and that's why I'm always privileged 
and feels such a great um, uh, opportunity arises through the preaching at funeral services uh, to be able to present this issue of eternity and the promises of God. But this first psalm sets the tone for the entire collection of 150. And my subject today uh, is primarily heaven as expressed through the psalms. And while I'll reference a couple other verses in the Old Testament, that's primarily where we're going to be today. So as we look at Psalm 1, we see a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Clearly in this, we see the rewards of the righteous and the punishment or the losses of the wicked. Now, it carries with us the greater weight of not only the benefits or losses within this mortal life, but more importantly, even those of eternity. What does Psalm 1 teach us as it contrasts the righteous and wicked? The righteous avoids the downward progression of sin, whereas the wicked increase in their unrighteousness, in their sinfulness. The righteous delights in God's word, but the wicked, in essence, scoffs at it. The righteous are rooted and fruitful. The wicked are worthless. And I say that word carefully, but from a biblical perspective, from an eternal perspective, the wicked are worthless and they are transient. Now this does not mean that a wicked person or someone who is not within the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot carry out good works. The common grace of God tells us the difference between right and wrong and every person, whether born again or not, can choose to do something good for another person, show acts of kindness, or even express great mortal love in their marriage or towards their children or other people. But their heart attitude is one of scoffing at the instruction of God. They turn away from the Lord God. As Psalm 2 teaches, they scoff at him. We want to throw off these supposed chains of God. We rebel against this king, and the scriptures tell us in Psalm 2 that God scoffs at these people. The righteous are rooted and fruitful. The wicked, their lives amount to nothing. The righteous finally are secure in their standing before God, but the wicked will perish under his judgment. That's what it means when we get to this part. It says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. What that really literally means is this. The wicked person, the person who does not live their life by faith in the living God, will be unable to stand on the day of judgment. They will be speechless. Indeed, later we're told that they will bow the knee and they will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. They will be forced to, to submit and then they will be under eternal judgment. Unpopular preaching in this day and age. And yet, it is the bad news that's important for us to grasp before we can understand and receive the good news that gives us the hope for the best that is yet to come. 
Now, while Psalm 1 sets the tone for the collection of 150 sung prayers, the entire Old Testament testifies to the contrast between the perfection and delights of heaven and the horror of life and death apart from the promises of God. And time does not permit that we go into examples of this, but if you read your Old Testament at all, you see very graphic descriptions of blessing upon the righteous person and of curses and judgment upon the wicked. Think of Eden, perfect communion with God, with no conflict, pain, shame, hunger, fear, etc., until the entrance of man's sinful, willful sin, rather, destroyed the relationship and brought the process of death into all creation to the point where we're told in Romans, the whole earth groans, waiting for the day of redemption. Can you feel that groaning? Not only do we see it in the world around us, but more personally, we can sense the groaning in our own bodies. I told my wife, Becky, last week that uh, I find myself sighing a lot lately. And it's unconscious. If I turn on the news, my blood pressure goes up. And I'm not being figurative about that. I'm being literal. There are times when for my own health, I think I need to turn the television off. But I, I sense this great sigh in my spirit as we deal with the issues in the world around us and in my own flesh, which longs for the day of redemption. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul called out. And I feel that on a regular basis. Oh, God, deliver me from myself. And I think if we're honest, we all need to be in that place on a regular basis admitting to God that we struggle. Quit trying to sweep it under the rug and pretend that things are okay and that you can manage. Friends, loved ones, we cannot manage on our own apart from the saving grace of God and the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. All the Old Testament is the story of God calling out to a chosen people to prepare them for a restored, perfected, and eternal communion with him. Turn to Isaiah 25. Those of you who have heard me speak at funeral services, uh, I could not resist this passage of Scripture because I think it is so powerful in concord with this message. Isaiah 25, beginning with the sixth verse. 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord, Jehovah of hosts, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations. 
Is this not the predominant element in the world today that results in people's lack of understanding about truth? The head-scratching perplexity that we have at the lack of common sense in the world around us today. Where good is bad and bad is good and the world is upside down. Who would have thought even 10 years ago that we would be dealing with some of the social issues that are so commonly thrown in our face on a daily basis? This is the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations, and we see the result in famine and selfishness and power grabbing and war, conflict everywhere. Verse 8 tells us, and oh, I love this, He, speaking of the Lord God Jehovah, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people. He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What a homecoming there is going to be on that day when we are free from the darkness and the covering and the veil of a broken world and we are free from the reproach that is upon our own flesh, our own sinful, willful rebellion against God, even as children of God, how often we disobey and we'll be free from all of that what a day of rejoicing that let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation this is eternity well we see those words echoed down through the millennia and in the book of revelation chapter 21 we read these words that our pastor has read to us recently. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, I've often said this, and I think there are some commentators who disagree with me. I see this sea as a reference back to Ezekiel and other places in Isaiah that speak of the lost world of rebellious mankind as a churned-up sea a dark sediment filled violent sea of chaos and violence and rebellion that sea will be no more and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God no more veil over our eyes we will see God he will wipe away every tear. And here is a direct reference from Isaiah 25. From their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making 
all things new. I look forward to that feast. I hope you do too. In fact, your longing for that feast is an indication, at the very least, of your love for the Lord, your love for His Word, and it may even be an indication in its lack that you have not yet begun a relationship with Him. The veil is still over your own heart and mind. We pray that that veil will be removed today because that is the good work of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the veil would be removed and you would see heaven, at least a glimpse of it, and long for it and repent that you might receive it by faith. So did heaven occupy the hearts, the minds, the worship, the prayers of the Old Testament saints? Well, we've read from Psalm 1. Look at, uh, I'll read these quickly because we're not going to take much time. In Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Is this a reality today? I mean, yes, from heaven. He is the Lord God of all things. He sustains the world. But his actual rulership is a day in the future. This speaks of the eternal rule and reign of the living God. Psalm 23. Surely, verse 6, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? Forever. Not just in this life. Now, God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So this means that the moment of your conversion in Jesus Christ, eternity comes to live in your heart. Christian, eternity lives inside of you. It has yet to escape the bonds of earth, of your own flesh. But it should be increasing within you, shining brighter and brighter until that day. This is the reality for the believer. But this certainly continues on into eternity. Look at Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Oh, a day when the King will come marching into the city and he will set up his rule and reign forever. In Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so why would God give us the privilege of being able to come here and worship him here and seek him and fellowship and encourage one another and build one another up if it was all supposed to end when we die? No, this is a precursor to heaven. This is a precursor to all of eternity. 
and yet we deal with it so flippantly. We're so casual about our reverence for God. We're so casual about worship from our hearts, about paying attention to the Word of God, about praying together, about serving the body together. This is all a precursor for the day when we will forever be with Him. Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Are you going through a difficult time? Are you facing a particularly dark period in your life? Joy will come in the morning. Morning will dawn. It may be a long trial. God may choose not to deliver you from this trial in a quick, easy manner. The way we Americans love to have things taken care of. Quick and easy. No, God may be tempering you in the flames of trial or tribulation as he does me, to refine us and make us more like gold to reflect the image of Jesus Christ to a lost world. And so when we suffer well and when we are refined in the fires of these trials, people are able then, if we submit to him and trust him, to see the image of Jesus more clearly. And they will say, goodness, this whole thing about Jesus must be real. Look at them, the way they're living. And the day is coming when there will be more of this asked of us. Verses 11 and 12 in the same chapter. You've turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever forever on and on and on what starts here just keeps ramping up and goes on and on into eternity and then one of my absolute favorite passages in psalm 73 nevertheless i am continually with you this david cries out and sings out in prayer when he looks at the world around him and thinks look at how those wicked people live they get by with everything doesn't it feel like that sometimes Wicked, power-hungry people. They get by with whatever they want. There's no justice. There's no righteousness. There's nothing fair about this. Wicked people are getting ahead. God, what, where are you? I, I, why am I even living the Christian life? I don't get anything from it except hardship and trial. And this is exactly what David is expressing in Psalm 20, 73, rather. But he says here in, Psalm, here in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. There is a constancy in the companionship of God that will never end. I will never leave you or forsake you. I hold you securely. He goes on to say, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, What? you will receive me to glory whom have I in heaven but you and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you you are my greatest treasure Lord 
I long for you. I long to see you face to face. I long to be in your presence and know the joy and fulfillment that comes from being yours. That's what David is saying here. My flesh and my heart may fail. I love the honesty of the Psalms. My flesh and my heart, verse 26 says, may fail. Boy, there are days I do not want to get up and go. There are days when I really struggle. There are days when I feel sad or depressed. Days when I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I feel like it's one step forward and two steps back. Does anybody else ever feel that way? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Glory to God. I love that verse. So, in just this brief sampling, we read how the chosen people, those who were called into the relationship with God, were defined and shaped by their eternal perspective as they anticipated the perfect universal worship of the Lord with all the joy and the peace that will attend that place and time. And no time beyond time into eternity. So let's turn our attention finally. That was a long introduction, wasn't it? To Psalm 16. Let's turn our attention to Psalm 16. And for the sake of time, I'm going to just get straight into my outline on this rather than reading it in its entirety. First, we'll read it by little sections. I've thought about this issue of inheritance because that's what I've entitled this message. I have a good inheritance. I have a great inheritance. I have the best inheritance. Who is the lottery winner in Indiana? My inheritance is better than that. And I don't have all the problems that that particular individual is going to have to face. Are you wasting your money on that kind of thing? Stop doing that. Invest your money elsewhere for the sake of the kingdom of God instead of getting rich quick. We have an inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ that surpasses anything this world could ever offer. I don't care whether it's the Taj Mahal. It doesn't make any difference. What is offered to you, it cannot compare with the glories of heaven. Now, I have no promise of a significant earthly inheritance. I was raised in a lower middle class, blue collar home, hardworking parents who earned every penny they ever made. We lived frugally, not in poverty, but we lived frugally, simple lives, especially by today's standards. We never went hungry. We would hand our clothes down to the next brother. <laughs> I was the oldest, so I got him first. <laughs> But there's no promise. My mother's at home in glory, so she's already gotten her inheritance. And uh, my dad and stepmother are not wealthy people. I'm not given, I'm not promised anything wonderful and some great inheritance here. And you know, these matters are often speculative anyway. And disappointing if we set our hearts on them. 
Oh, one day I'm going to get that great inheritance. And then what happens? The inheritance gets changed. The will gets changed. Or there's a great loss, and all of that inheritance gets used up in long-term health care. Now, this is the reality of life today. And I'm not joking about it. This is the way things go. You set your hearts on something in this world, and it takes wings and flies away. Much of this speculation and disappointment is based in uncertain, inconsistent emotions and behaviors and needs of fallen human beings. That's the nature of this life. For this reason, the source of the inheritance is of utmost importance. The source. And so in Psalm 16, we see the good inheritance. The source is the Father. He is the Father of our inheritance. Look at verses 1 and 2. Preserve me. This is a miktam of David, a golden poem, or some believe a secret teaching. One commentator, Derek Kidner, thinks that it refers to a a high and holy inscription that, that it was at the head of certain psalms, this psalm and Psalms 56 through 60, where the same term is used, a miktam of David, for particularly uh, powerful instruction in the religious liturgy of the Jewish people. Regardless, we're to take note. And David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, and this is Jehovah once again, the great I am, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What do we learn from this? He is the Lord God. There is none above him, none greater, none who will last longer, none who is wiser or more powerful. He is creator, according to Genesis 1, and he is father of all humankind. He created all that we enjoy today. He holds it. He sustains it. He is creator and father. He is a promise keeper. Look at Romans 8.32. I'll have you look at this. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He is a promise keeper. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God is a promise keeper. And he is good. Psalm 145, verse 9. Psalm 145, verse 9. Our God is a good God. He is not this vengeful, capricious wrathful God yet does he hate sin will he judge absolutely but his default God's primary character is seen here in Psalm 145 verse 9 the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made this is common grace God lets the rain fall on the crops of the wicked farmer as well as the righteous farmer God allows flowers to grow in the gardens of the wicked as well as in the garden of the children of God. God feeds us. He provides for us. He is good. 
He's a promise keeper and he's good. Secondly, we see the nature of the inheritance in Psalm 16 in verses 3 and 4. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is our, or rather, excuse me, this is occupied by the holy ones or the called out ones. That's what a saint is. A saint simply means ones who are holy, who are called out, who are set up. Ones, these are the ones who bring delight. I'm going to have you look quickly at two references in Romans chapter 1, verse 7. And I'll read it for you quickly. To all those in Rome, Paul writes in the introduction of his letter, who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, where we're told this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints that's the nature of this inheritance is that it's occupied by saints we're not perfect in this life we struggle we make mistakes it's always best to have a posture of grace towards anyone that you worship with or are in fellowship with and certainly in our homes have a posture of grace we're not perfect yet but we will be we will be. And heaven is inhabited by perfect saints, called out ones, holy ones, in whom is all my delight. Have you ever noticed how wonderfully warm and comforting it is to be in the fellowship of other true believers? And how you can feel an immediate tension that arises when you're in the presence of people who hate God? That's why I love the church. It's the fellowship of the saints, and it's going to go on into eternity. But we see here that the sorrows of idolaters are non-existent in this inheritance. There will be no false gods. There will be no false uh, sacrifices poured out, no profanity, nothing idolatrous. It'll be a place inhabited by people who are in the family. Third, we see the surety of the inheritance in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is the surety of the inheritance. The Lord is our possession. God himself is our possession. In John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, I'll read these verses for you. You can write them down and read them later to check me, check me on this. But it says, I do not ask for these only, Jesus prayed, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me 
and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the surety of the inheritance. The Lord himself is our possession. Isn't that interesting to know that he is yours and you are his? And our inheritance is assured and beautiful, we're told here. The lines have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. It should be enough for us. Fourthly, the comfort of the inheritance in verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night, or gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. The comfort of the inheritance, the Lord's counsel instructs us even in the night seasons. And this is a powerful passage of Scripture that you need to definitely write down and read on your own. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Hunker down that passage for a while, and you will be deeply encouraged. The Lord is our guide, companion, and guard. So which is it? Is he in front of me, or is he beside me? He's both. God is not only before me as my guide, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus promised that he will guide us through this life, he'll, but he will also be the companion, the good shepherd, who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And not only that, he protects us with his rod and his staff. So God is our guide, but he's also our comforter, our companion, and our guard. And finally, the motivation of the inheritance in the last few verses of this blessed psalm. Therefore, my heart, therefore, because of all these things that we've read and studied previously today, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the living dead, Or let your Holy One see corruption. And here we see a direct prophecy to the Messiah, to Jesus. His body was not corrupted. He had no sin. Now you and I may face corruption and decay in the grave. 
but we will be reconstituted, given a heavenly body, and be forever with the Lord. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our inheritance provides us joy and security. We will never be abandoned. Listen again to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then those glorious verses at the end of this chapter, Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, will be able to separate me, you, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our inheritance provides us joy and security. Our lives are characterized by fullness of joyful life and eternal pleasures. It says there, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. One more verse in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, a passage of scripture that uh, was sung to me years ago in a song by Ron Canoli, Righteousness, Peace, and Joy. And it says in verse 17 of Romans 14. Now, put yourself in the right book, Eric. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So what's our conclusion today? We must see God as the perfect promise keeper who is good. Why would we want an inheritance from somebody who is really bad and it's not promised, it's uncertain to us? They break their promises, they have poor character. No, we have to see God as the perfect promise keeper who is good. Secondly, there are saints and there are sorrowful. Which one are you? Third, the first and foremost possession our hearts must desire is the Lord. When he's our greatest desire, our inheritance is certain. Fourth, the Lord's constant companionship will guide, counsel, and guard me all the way to my inheritance through all seasons of life. And I can tell you that in this season of my life, I long for it with more fervency than I ever have at, another, at, at earlier times. And I believe it will increase. And finally, in the mean, uh, or rather, the, um, yes, finally, in the meantime, before fully acquiring my inheritance, I can and should live a joyful life as I look forward to eternal pleasures. Why would anyone around you want what you have if you have no joy? If your life is not marked by righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost, why would anyone in their right mind want what you have? So this is the motivation of a good focus upon this beautiful inheritance that we have, that we would live lives that would point to him and clearly reflect him and his glory and his goodness 
to a lost world around us. Friends, more than politics, more than power, more than finances, more than anything else in this world, this is what will make a difference, one life at a time, that they might also enjoy the best that is yet to come. Father, we commit ourselves to this and thank you for the word of God rich with its promises about the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for anyone in this room today, and certainly there must be at least one, whether on, t- on the television or computer today, watching and listening or sitting in this room, that is uncertain about their inheritance in Jesus Christ. Would you bring them into the embrace of the saints rather than than to remain in the despondency of the sorrowful. Bring new life into their lives and may we as believers reflect the grace and the glory and the promises of God through the righteousness, joy, and peace of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.